Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., and on this week's episode, I'm joined by my friend Marty, and we review Twilight Imperium 3. It's a huge undertaking, so before we jump into it, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I have been playing lately. Or, I would talk about that, except I haven't actually been playing anything lately. I have been horribly remiss in my duties as a host and as a self-declared gamer. I have not played a single board game in the last week. Um, It's somewhat distressing to me personally, and I think it is largely due to the fact that my primary supplier of board games, Jacob, is still out of town. So in lieu of doing that, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about an RPG that I'll be running for some people here in the coming months. The last several episodes have included multiple instances of us talking about RPGs in particular. It's been something of a renewed focus for us, where in the past we've centered mostly on board games. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is that one of my coworkers reached out to me and said, Hey, I have a group of friends and we've been looking for a GM for a long time. Would you be willing to GM a session for us? Or a campaign, rather. And of course I said yes. And we will soon be embarking on what is, for my four players, their first ever Dungeons & Dragons adventure. So I'm very excited. I am somewhat nervous. I think it's very important to have a good first experience with D&D. And many of them are nerds. You know, they've had video game experience. They've played things like Baldur's Gate. They are familiar with some of the concepts of D&D, but they've never played before. So we're starting in 5th edition, which I think is a really good place to start. I think 5th edition has lots of things that make it attractive to new players. It's more streamlined than 3.5 or Pathfinder, but it's also more uh, robust, shall we say, and the the classes are more unique than in something like 4th edition. So I'm happy to be starting them on 5th we had sort of an inaugural, you know, session zero, talk about how the system works, talk about what character concepts you all are thinking of putting together. And I think everybody is is quite excited. The Of the, the four players, three of them have talked about who they want to be. So we're going to have one uh, dragonborn rogue who may or may not be good at their job. <laughs> so I look forward to seeing where that goes. We're going to have one tiefling druid, which is just a phenomenal and imaginative race class combination, which I doubt I ever personally would have put together. And so I'm excited to see where that goes. Uh, and then we also have a gnome monk. So monks are something of a, um, a favorite of mine. Monks have been one of my favorite classes since, you know, my days of playing Baldur's Gate and AD&D and seeing just their wealth of unique class features. So I am... Very excited to be guiding them into the world of D&D. We're going to be playing a campaign that is hopefully not too intense. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it mostly in the sort of investigated social aspects of the game. You know, obviously there's going to be combat, but I think I want to ground it mostly in the non-combat exploration and social aspects of the game, simply because, to, to be completely honest, those parts of the game go faster. You know, um, combat has always taken a very long time, and even in a party of only four players, combat is something where you can really kind of find your attention wavering in longer fights, where, you know, you've got 
a couple, maybe up to five, 10 minutes between turns, depending on what people are doing. And obviously at, at first level, there's probably not much that's going to be going on in, in terms that take that long. But overall, I do think that uh, combat is best left as a minor aspect. Now, granted, like I said, none of these people have ever played before, so it's possible that they're expecting something much more combat-focused, and it's possible that that is, is something that they will want me to give them. And so per the conversation that I had with Pedro a few weeks ago where we talked about, you know, what are some tips for good GMs, that's something that I, of course, have to be responsive to. And if that's something that they let me know that they want then absolutely, that's that's something that I'll have to move towards giving them. But for now, I think we are going to focus on more of a, an exploration and a social aspect of the game. Jacob is helping me. He's sort of my, my quality tester, my quality assurance guy when I'm crafting this plot and when I'm crafting the setting and things because I find one of sort of my enduring flaws as an aspiring GM is that I tend to focus too narrowly. I tend to think about very specific things, and I go very in-depth, but then I don't do very well at putting the big picture together. So Jacob is helping me out with that, helping me make interesting plot hooks rather than just obviously arbitrary and uh, minimally crafted plot hooks that are designed to move towards the aspects of the game that I have thought about. So that's, that's very helpful to me, and I am definitely excited to be playing that with them in the future. With their permission, I do hope to share some of our exploits with you all here on the podcast. Currently, we're calling the campaign The Rookies, and I'm going to give them the opportunity to name their adventuring party after they form an adventuring party, actually, as it stands, being that they're level one, they are not a formal adventuring party yet. So we'll have to do that. They'll have their first adventure, and then I'll give them the chance to pick a name. So hopefully I'll be bringing you some more updates. I very much look forward to that. Hopefully also I will have a chance to actually play some more games. Uh, I could definitely do a better job of doing that. I have quite a few games sitting on my shelf at the moment. City of Iron, Terraforming Mars, of course, always a favorite, as well as a handful of others that, you know, really there's no reason for me not to be playing more often than I am. But then besides that, there's also the uh, Starfinder sort of mini campaigns that we were talking about that is still in the works and we are hoping to bring you sort of a round table type uh, conversation where it's just us and some of our friends really just sort of shooting the shit and talking about some of our favorite role-playing stories so hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to bring you that before too long and in the meantime i will do my best to play some more games so i will be able to talk about them to you all here on the podcast Here we go, everybody. The moment you've all been waiting for. This is probably one of the most intense games that we have ever reviewed. This is Twilight Imperium 3. I am joined by my good friend, Marty. Hello, I'm Marty. There he is. Uh, and Marty is something of uh, an uh, aficionado for Twilight Imperium and also for strategic combat games in general. So we're very happy to have him with us on the stream today, and we're going to be hopefully giving some good analysis and some good breakdown of how TI3 works. I also run the notorious Delta Green campaign that I've been torturing uh, Greg here with for the last couple weeks, so I'm sure you'll hear more about that soon. <laughs> 
That's right. All those stories you've been hearing from me about crazy space zombies and crazy regular zombies and rock and roll and punk metal and all that shit, uh, that's been run by this guy here. So you can uh, thank or blame him as you choose. But yeah, so Twilight Imperium 3 is an enormous game. Uh, It's a huge undertaking just to even describe, much less to play. So we're going to try to run through the mechanics really as quickly and as bare bones as possible so that we can get into talking about some of the strategic implications. So thematically, you all play as individual space empires who are vying for control in a galaxy where the dominant power has fallen thousands of years before. And everyone's kind of reconstructing their galactic civilizations. And uh, Greg's going to get going on the gameplay or the mechanics. Yeah, so that's really a great succinct description of how the game is organized. Each player takes on the role of one of these factions. They have slight differences. Some of them have, you know, they're better at combat. Some of them are better at industry. Some of them are better at diplomacy. Each of them has something that makes them slightly unique. But really, the core of the game is always the same. Each faction is going to be trying to use their fleets to take control of the galaxy. The galaxy is comprised of numerous sectors, so these are just little hexes that have, you know, between one and three planets on them. Each planet gives you resources, so material that you can use to construct fleets or to research technology, and also influence that you can use in electing a leader or, you know, implementing a a policy card, things like that. So fleets are really the core of the game. There's something like six or seven different types of ships of varying sizes, varying strengths, varying costs, and each player is going to have the same basic selection of those that they're going to move around the map. The planets themselves, as we mentioned, are varied and they're also randomized. So when you create a game, when you set up a new game, the tiles are placed one by one by each player sort of in sequence so that when you are playing a game you're never playing the same game twice even if you have all of the same tiles in play as you did in a previous game they're probably in different locations so the strategic and sort of geographic aspects of the game are going to be different from playthrough to playthrough besides that the fundamental way that you do move the the fleets to get them to the planets and take control of things is done via command counters. Every faction has a certain number of command counters. You start with seven command counters, which are split amongst three different zones. The first is your command pool, and the command pool is where you draw command counters from when you are moving or activating a system in order to build there. It's essentially how you navigate and how you interact with the map. Command counters in your fleet size section are not spent, and instead they just passively dictate the maximum number of unsupported ships you can have at a time. And then the final section, where your command counters go, is called your strategic section. And this interacts with one of the other core mechanics of each game, which is the strategic actions. There are eight of them. And they deal with everything from trade to technology to diplomacy to combat readiness. At the beginning of each turn, each player selects a different strategic action that they must take at some point during their turn. So this is really their opportunity to say, this is what I want to focus on this turn. I want to make sure that I research a technology. I want to make sure that I establish a new trade route, something like that. That's going to probably shape the better part of their outlook for the turn. Now, 
strategic allocation command counters come into play because you have the opportunity to essentially follow an action performed by another player. Whenever they activate their strategic action, if you have command counters remaining in your pool, you can spend them and say, I want to do a lesser version of that. So it's really important for keeping up with everybody that you make sure that you have enough command counters in your strategic allocation to do all the things that you want to do on a turn that you weren't able to select because each player only gets one. So that's command counters. That really governs how you do things. And then in terms of what you're doing and where you're headed, the game ends when one player reaches 10 victory points. Victory points are acquired in a couple of different ways, mostly by controlling Mechatol Rex, which is the the ancient seat of that fallen empire that Marty mentioned at the beginning, and by accomplishing objectives. There's two types of objectives. There's secret objectives, which are usually things like uh, take control of a system next to an opponent's home system, or build up your military industrial base, something like that. And then there are public objectives, which can be anything from build a ship to have X number of technologies researched to have this many trade goods in your inventory. Public and secret objectives can be claimed at the end of each round. Each one usually gives one, but sometimes gives two points, and the first player to 10 is the winner. So that is a really quick and dirty look at the mechanics of Twilight Imperium. There's plenty that we didn't cover, the tech tree, the action cards, the political cards, but lest we carry on too long, I'm gonna to toss it over to Marty, and we're gonna get started talking about really the, the interesting part of this, which is the gameplay and the themes and really the experience of Twilight Imperium. So the first thing that I think I have to say about the gameplay is that the objectives drive the game. Especially in the very beginning of the game, everyone has a separate secret objective that they that only they can accomplish. And some of them are very aggressive, some of them are not. Um, but essentially the objectives, especially the public ones, will give you your goals and show you how to stop the other players from getting them. And that kind of gets into the politics of the game, uh, which is very much uh, offensive realism of you can't trust anyone and everyone's out to get you. And so you have to stop them from being powerful so that you can be powerful. It makes you very paranoid, but it's a lot of fun. You have to be very cognizant of the balance of power and you have to make sure that your military industrial complex is better than everyone else's. And that kind of lends itself to a very competitive environment. You want to have the right mix of players for this for a variety of reasons. You want to have people who are um, like of the same skill level, uh, but also people who can you know take a punch and not get angry about it after the game. So it's an amazing game if, if you have the right mix of players. And um, I think those are thematically the things I have to say about it. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially from the perspective of the objectives driving gameplay and gameplay being focused on combat. You have lots of sort of supporting elements. You know, you can research technology to make your ships better in combat. You can buy trade goods to give yourself more money to buy ships for combat. There's all of these sort of supporting elements on the fringes of the game, but the backbone of it is fleet-based combat, and territory control. And I think from that perspective, the game designers did a really fantastic job of making a, a tight, cohesive system. You know, it is die-based, so there's a little bit of chance, but stronger, bigger, more expensive ships roll more dice, and they hit on easier rolls. So really, statistically, it's all going to break down. If you have bigger, better ships, you are more likely to win. It's all about investing and getting to the point where you're able to project your power. 
that's really what it's about. It's about being able to project your power into this galaxy and control more territory and importantly control the right territory when compared to your opponents. I do think your point also about the sort of relative skill levels of the players is another really important one because this is a very long game and we'll talk about that more later but it's it's an investment both of time and of mental energy and if you have someone who is just categorically bad at strategic combat games or who's really out of their depth when it comes to this one in particular they're probably going to get beat up on even in a best case scenario they're not going to have fun they're not able to try for that victory at the same level that everyone else is so I think making sure that you have players who are at roughly the same skill level, and obviously, you know, don't be afraid to introduce it to new people, but just make sure that they know what they're getting into. And also making sure that you have players who are operating on the same level of commitment. You know, there's nothing worse than going into a game saying, I want to win, and the person next to you is going into that game saying, I want to fuck you up. It might be fun for them, but it's not going to be fun for everyone else because they're going to have to deal with this sort of chaotic, disruptive player in their midst. So going going back to the combat, um, Greg mentioned earlier that there are uh, action cards, and action cards can definitely influence things one way or another. And I think all of the upsets that I've seen in combat, and I've seen very few, have to do with a player having the right combination of action cards and played at the right time. But for the most part, combat, I, I would say probably 85 to 90% of the time, combat is gonna, way, gonna go the way that you think it's gonna go going into it. Um, unless, you know, it's parody, and very few people will fight under a parody condition, especially in this game. There's also a way to instill some randomness into the game uh, for the exploration phase in the very beginning when no one controls anything. You can put these sort of random tokens on um, planets and space spaces, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're really good, and sometimes they're really bad. So it can both, um, depending on how on who gets what, it could really unbalance the game at, from the get-go. I've seen a couple players' entire fleets be wiped out by a massive explosion because they just sent everyone there. That happened to Greg. Uh, <laughs> I've seen it happen another time, though. Yeah, so you're, you're not the only one. But there are also uh, things like, I don't know, this planet takes your soldiers hostage and you have to pay them. Or something like, oh, you get a free scientific advancement or you get some extra money. Like, it could be good, could be bad. We don't always play with them. Sometimes they slow down the game to a significant degree and i have seen them seriously unbalance the first like act of the game but that's neither here nor there they're optional you can choose not to there there are a lot of optional rules which are cool um there's like leaders that you can throw in um and then the expansions offer an even wider variety of optional rules some of which i've never played with but most of which i have uh one of the cool ones i've never seen this go successfully but it's the coolest rule ever is the the death star trench run where you can send your fighters to try to destroy an enemy Death Star before combat begins. It's a very risky maneuver, and I think you have like a 5% chance of success, if even. And so you have to have, statistically, 20 fighters against one Death Star to take it out. Send a rogue team, man. Yeah, the, the variability that you can add to the game, both that's 
built in in the form of, you know, differing faction selections from game to game, differing game setup from game to game, but also those optional rules, stuff like leaders, stuff like the uh, distant space tokens. They do really keep the game fresh and they keep it interesting, which is good because it's a game that's well worth coming back to, both for the fact that you are doing something different every time and what you're doing is designed very well, but also because there's just so much layering of the strategy. And I can't emphasize this enough, is that you have four or five different layers that you're operating under when you have to consider what you're doing. You know, you've got the tactical element where you have to say, okay, if I jump into this system, does that benefit me or does that hurt me in the immediate sense? Then you have to think strategically about what resources does this give me? What resources do I already have? What am I able to do? But then also with strategic action selection, which isn't even really a thing that a lot of people think about in terms of taking their turn because it happens right at the beginning. But knowing which strategic action to select when is one of the most vital things. If you're taking production because you want to scale up, you want to make sure that you're going to be able to do something with that. And also that you're not giving other people the opportunity to follow that production and scale up with you and punch you in the face. And also, depending on how many players you have in a given game, between like four or six, uh, the game differs wildly uh, with each kind of combination, mostly due to the amount of strategies that are taken in a round. If you have only four players, everyone will take two strategy cards, which allows every player to do more stuff, but it also means that no that every strategy card will be chosen. If you have five or six players, that means that there are some strategy cards that are going to stay on the table, and they'll get a little bonus token, but if you don't take it, you don't guarantee that it will be taken. So sometimes you're counting on someone to take the technology card so that you can use the secondary, but either nobody does take it because they don't want to, or they know you you want it for the secondary and they don't take it to screw you over. So it could it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis from the get-go, even before the round begins. Exactly. Now, we've kind of peppered in a few sort of criticisms and reservations about the game, but for a sort of a formal look at why no game, including TI3, is perfect, I think we can return, first of all, to length. Twilight Imperium 3 is one of the longest games I have ever personally played. It is not unheard of. You get a six-player game, even just a regular setup, not even a large setup. You're sitting down for a six to eight hour game. You're committing half of a day just to playing this game. And that's going to be a drain on people. Like, even if you go into the game most gung-ho, you're super excited, you know that you love the game, you know that you love the genre, you're ready to kick some ass. Six to eight hours later, you're just going to be done. You're going to want to go to bed. You're going to start making bad decisions, either purposefully or not. And it's, it's going to just be something that you have to be cognizant of going into the game. After a game of Twilight Imperium, I just want to sit down and watch cartoons because I'm so I'm so I'm always so mentally drained by it because it's it's a very paranoia inducing game. It takes a lot of brain power. You definitely want to have food on hand when you play this game. <laughs> I think our next our next no perfect game criticism is that the skill level of players and adapting to the game, it is a very um, high learning curve game. But once you're, o once you're over that curve, then you're good to go. But if you have people who, who are at the table who say they're good or think they're good and then they're not, they're just going to get wailed on. Um, and it's really important to have people who are of similar skill levels when you're playing this game. Exactly. And similarly, one of the problems that you can kind of run into with 
this game is the so-called munchkin problem or the kingmaker problem where you have a game state that's going to evolve over time but eventually you're probably get to get to a place where you have one or two or maybe three titans and those are the players who are really competing for victory and everybody else is more or less locked out barring some major tectonic shifts in the state of the game so those players by virtue of their actions and by virtue of who they side with can become the kingmakers in the game and whether or not they approach that decision rationally versus, oh, I'm just going to attack this person because they're yellow and I don't like yellow, you know, sort of like you don't like the player, stuff like that can be a problem just sort of by the nature of how the game is going to break down. Yeah, that's for sure. There, There's always the first Navy that stacks on Mechatol Rex will get wrecked by somebody inevitably. So my, my biggest problem with this game, and I guess it's not a huge problem, is that uh, when the expansions came out, they radically altered the game balance of the original game. Some of the races benefited disproportionately from some of the rules changes. The strategy cards changed. They took a little bit to get used to. But ultimately, the new strategy cards are better, but they just disproportionately benefit some of the races over the others. Um, also, the new races that they introduced with each expansion, some of them were a little overpowered or they made the older races feel obsolete. One of the new races was is entirely awful. <laughs> no one wants to play them. No one wants to play the Yin Brotherhood because their their special abilities are so discordant, I guess is the best word for it. They don't interact well with the other abilities of the faction. So it's difficult to pull a coherent strategy with them. I don't think I've ever even been in a game where someone chose to play them. Also, I guess just some of the optional rules in the expansion, uh, or in both expansions, particularly with regard to politics, they they introduced a new political system that was entirely optional, thankfully, um, and it just doesn't seem like it's that good. It seems like the makers of the game could have come up with something better, but they just kind of threw this out there, and I've never played with it. I've read it probably four or five times and uh, thinking like oh maybe we'll play with it this time but it looks it seems like it just adds more complex like over complexity to something that's already complicated enough um and i'm not even really sure how it would go in a game but i mean ultimately this is an amazing game like if you have the right elements if the right group of people you have the time and you're all committed to victory yeah i absolutely agree and i can't stress enough how much of a good example of what the genre can be twilight imperium 3 is you know i am not the biggest fan of strategic combat games i don't really like risk i definitely don't like accents and allies twilight imperium 3 there's something about it that just draws me in and i don't know it's it's the theme it's how all of the elements mostly except for maybe politics work together to create this cohesive whole centered around a still very prominent central pillar I think I may know um, why you like it. It's not a dedicated war game. You're not at war with anyone in the game until you decide to fight them. Like Axis and Allies, you're locked into your fight. Um, every every World War II game, there's no options. But with this, you don't have to fight to win. It's very unlikely that you're going to win without fighting, but I've seen it happen. It's possible. I have seen one game where not one fight broke out. Wow, yeah. Um, there's probably something to that. I, I would not be surprised if that if you just really hit on what I like most about it. But in terms of rating, official capital R rating, I'm going to give it a play it. It is uh, an amazing game, but it's also a very expensive game. And it's also a game that's very hard to bring to table if you don't have that dedicated, skilled group of core players that we mentioned earlier. So 
I think it's a play it for me. I love playing Marty's copy, but I would not be tempted to go out and buy myself a new copy. So I'm going to give it the rating of uh, buy it because I bought it. (laughs) But if someone else in your gaming group owns it and has the, the players and the time to pl- that you can play it i would recommend doing that it is a very expensive game i probably spent 150 bucks total on the base and the expansions maybe a little more i don't remember but um that was worth every penny for me because i love the game and i will play it with any of my friends who want to play but if it's just going to sit on your shelf unplayed because you thought it looked cool but you bring it to your gaming group and they just want to play Yu-Gi-Oh or something, then it's not going to work out for you and you probably should have reconsidered that decision. But definitely, if you guys are into strategic war games or rather strategic conflict games, um, someone in your group should probably get this or you can all pool your resources and get it, whatever. But if you get the chance to play it without buying it, you should do that. (laughs) Also, speaking of buying it, the fourth edition of this game just dropped. I have not played it yet. Uh, very few people have, I would think. It's a, I think it's about 150 bucks on its own. And from hearing an after-action report of some people who played it, they said it was just about the same as number three, with some minor changes in uh, mechanics, just minor tweaks here and there. They said that if we had like a printout version of the rules, we could use our own pieces from Twilight Imperium three to recreate Twilight Imperium 4. So keep that in mind. It is a caveat. Um, The fourth one may be better in certain ways. It may be worse. I'm not sure. I I would assume that a lot of action cards got changed. (laughs) That's probably the big thing. And they probably rebalanced all of the races for a single rule set, which which was probably necessary um, because of the expansion uh, changes. Oh, I think they they completely revamped the tech though. They tried explaining it to me, but they were they had the post TI mind drain, so <laughs> they didn't do very well. But I think that they they fundamentally changed the tech, and that's probably the biggest thing they changed. Um, but either way, if you love strategy games, at, le- at the very least, play this one. Well, there you go, straight from the expert's mouth. Uh, thank you very much, Marty, for joining us on well, joining me on this episode as we gave a very quick, very incomplete rundown of Twilight Imperium Three, one of our favorite games. We hope you're encouraged to check it out or, you know, attach yourself to a friend who has it and play their copy. If you have anything to say, if you think we missed anything, if you think there was stuff that we didn't give as much credit as it deserved, feel free to comment. Let us know. Send us a message uh, and we'd love to take your advice and use it in our next game. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope you enjoyed our review of Twilight Imperium 3 and that you're encouraged to, at the very least, check it out if you don't want to pick it up for yourself. Do tune in later this week. We'll be back to our regular stream schedule. I think we're going to be doing a physical stream, probably Zombicide, now that Jacob is back in town. So don't forget to check that out where it's available on Twitch and also on YouTube. Reminder, the YouTube also has videos on demand. We have sort of our... uh, retrospectives all of the sessions that we've played before as well as a handful of other videos we definitely encourage you to check those out and of course hit us up on facebook anytime or twitter if you just want to ask us some questions give us some ideas for future podcasts or even future recurring segments that we could talk about here on the show thank you for listening i've been greg b and we hope to see you next week